The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. I'm Simon Reynolds and I'm in an imaginary airport business lounge with the world's most successful people waiting for their flight. Business people have to travel and sometimes delays happen and we can take advantage of that. You get to hear 45 minutes of one guest in conversation before their flight boards. You'll hear their stories, the triumphs, the challenges and the lessons they've learned along the way. Welcome to the Business Lounge. The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. She's one of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and the winner of Telstra Australian Businesswoman of the Year. She started with just a few dollars and a dream, and damn, has she come a long way. She's now the undisputed queen of the muesli cookies and crackers industry. It's an extraordinary story, and you're going to hear about it all from the lady herself. Carolyn Creswell, co-founder of Carmen's Fine Foods, welcome to the Business Lounge. Thank you, Simon. It's exciting to be here. Uh, It's great to have you. Now, you're obviously a huge business success story, but you didn't deliberately plan to start Carmen's, did you? I did not. So I was um, just a a young girl with lots of part-time jobs, and one of the jobs was um, making muesli, which I did as an 18-year-old girl um, every Tuesday, and I remember they paid me $8 an hour, which was, you know, still a bit rough. (laughs) Yeah. And then after after um, six months, they said to me that they had decided they were going to sell this tiny little business, but it might want to keep me working there or whoever bought it might might want to make it themselves. So they wanted to do the honourable thing and let me know I was about to lose my job. There was another lady that worked there and we decided that we would put an offer in of $1,000 each and see if we could buy this business. And uh, it took them a few months, but eventually they said yes, and that's how Carmen's was born. So the first three letters of my name, Carolyn, and the first three letters of my partner's name, so Manya. So that's how we uh, we came up with the name Carmen's. Wow. So in total, you offered $2,000. Now, the reason it took a few months, were they trying to get a, a bigger offer for the company, like $3,000? Yeah. Yeah. No, they were trying to get $10,000. Mm-hmm. And so they would send other people to come in to look at buying it. And that was a really bad strategy because you don't want the underbidders to be the ones trying to sell your business. So we used to shut the window of the bakery <laughs> to make it extra steamy. And we, um, we, we sort of always put them on the harder job. My job was even easier. I, I sort of heated up the honey and put it through the muesli. But my um, my business partner, she was responsible of putting the trays into the oven and the, the people, we always put them on her job and they'd end up with little scolds up their arms and, um, <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it was hot and sweaty. And then at the end of the day, they'd say, oh, that's not for them. So we'd say, yes, another one down. <laughs> And um, yeah, so eventually they they didn't have a choice, or well, they, they didn't have anyone else. So we were the only only people uh, who put an offer in. Love that, love that. So you were going to uni at the time, were you? And you started this yeah. part time. What what was it like trying to run a business that had just started while you're still at uni? I'd already been doing it for six months, so I really just bought my job. But you know, there's a whole lot of stuff that comes with having a small business. So I used to do the books in the library at lunchtime and I do deliveries before my lectures. So I was doing a arts degree out at Monash University and I'd hoped that I might get 
good enough marks to transfer into law, but the muesli business sort of took over. I did finish my arts degree, but, um, but you know, never got that law degree. <laughs> so you went to uni, but it wasn't a business degree. Do you actually think uni no. is of value to potential entrepreneurs? Yeah. Do you know what I think is fascinating about uni is that uni teaches you to think. So I was doing all of these quite unusual um, subjects. I remember I was doing politics and sociology. I'd chosen these subjects because they just had um, essays for the exams rather than actually going and sitting an exam. I thought I'd do better that way. Don't know. That was a great strategy. But anyway, I digress. Be studying sort of Japanese politics. And in in my day, you know, there was no internet. Um, People didn't even have computers. So you'd go into the library and you'd go and borrow a book and you'd read about some subject. And I think that really set me up for when I started the business that I wouldn't know what lots of things, but I'd just have to go and learn about them. And I think that that's what's super interesting. You know, when you're when you're at school, you get told, well, you've got to learn this. Whereas once you go to uni, there's no one spoon feeding it to you and you, you just go off on, on a tangent. You have to learn all these random things. And yeah. yeah, it taught me to think. Yeah, it makes sense. Whereas a lot of people say, oh, well, the subject's not relevant, but it's the process that uh, maybe is the most valuable thing. And I think also doing things you don't want to do, um, disciplining yourself to study, I think is a totally underestimated skill later used in business to to do the unpleasant things when you don't want to. 100%. And I, and I also think it's very interesting. I think like I love learning and we, we use a, a tool at work called Strengthscope and not everyone has this sort of love of learning and love of self-development. But for me, going off and, and reading up about something and still to this day, I love thinking, you know, I've done lots of other courses, you know, I've done my the Australian Institute of Company Directors or I, I did um, Mark Ritson's MBA in COVID, um, mini MBA in marketing and then in brand, which I loved in COVID. And even though it's bloody hard, these are things that help keep your brain thinking and, and learning new skills and yeah oh yeah I've always yeah, had a lot of a lot of pleasure out of learning yeah now I read a book talking of learning by a an Australian-based French time management expert by the name of yes. Cyril Poupion <laughs> Cyril and I'm pretty I sure you book. yeah you, yes you said it was the the greatest book we could ever ever read ever. tell me tell me about that Oh, I love that book. I've recommended it so much that he sent me flowers, which um, <laughs> they call him my, my work boyfriend. Uh, what I learned about that is, is probably a couple of things. It's how do you create time to work on the big rocks? So it's very easy at work to do the day-to-day. It'd be like in your house to say, well, I'm just going to you know, wipe the kitchen bench and put the dishwasher on. But what about if you say, well, hang on, you know, I want to clean out the cupboards in the guest room or whatever the, the jobs that you might want to um, get done. And I feel that that's what Cyril teaches you in a work sense, that if you want to progress, and I always think at Carmen's, you know, I'd love to think that every five years, we almost don't recognise the business. It's so, you know, it's a, a developed so much and so much more advanced than it was five years before because we're working on those bigger things. So we have a Uh, I'll digress for a second. We have an amazing strategy process here, which is a plan on a page. And we say these are all the big things. On a single page. On one page, one single page. Beautiful. And it has the the big sort of hairy, audacious goals of thinking that, you know, we want to have, say, for example, a 100% engaged workforce. And what would be the thing? So 
So we have sort of five big goals and then what are all the things in every department that would fall under those um, goals? And what Cyril teaches you is that you've got to create some room to be working on how you work better, how do you work on those bigger ticket things rather than just doing the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And um, and he also teaches you lots of stuff about how to respond to emails quickly, how to bullet point, how to not multitask. You know, I, I think sometimes we try and have all these things going at once and if you just stop and focus on something for 20 minutes, you know, I think it's, a, you know, they actually say it's 45 minutes that's um, incredible sort of period of time that you can just get so much done in, in a short amount of time. So yeah, I highly recommend that book to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about, for those people who missed it, Cyril Pupion. He's a, a time management expert, P-E-U-P-I-O-N. And check out his his stuff because he's uh, very impressive. I, I totally agree. I think he's amazing. Yes, and it's uh, called Work Smarter, Live Better. And I think Work I quite smarter, like the fact because I think that the Live Better is, is super interesting as well. Yeah. Well, you're quite about work-life balance, aren't you? You're, you know, one of the things that separates you from a lot of uh, CEOs is is you're, you're trying to make sure your staff have a life as well as a job. Yeah, well, I feel, you know, I've got four teenage children and, you know, really, you, you know, I, I love my work, but really what matters is what happens in your four walls at home and, and the life that you lead, I think, with your family. And having having that sense of separation, I think, is really important. And the only way that you can do that is by protecting your time. Mm. So, um, you know, I'm often talking about, you know, little time management um, tips that I have and tricks that I feel that help you try and balance that, you know, I come to work and I work really hard, but I, I don't work crazy hours and then to try and go home and, and to be present with your family and and have, you know, weekends off. And I feel that that's, uh, that's you know, to me, the idea of sort of, you know, of, of um, success in your life is having, um, having that separation and being able to, uh, to give you both, your best to both those worlds. Yeah, absolutely. That's true wealth, isn't it? To have have wealth in, yes, financially, but also socially and from a, a family point of view. I mean, that's that's genuine wealth. That's what I think too. <laughs> yeah, and and so when you say you don't work long hours, what type? How many hours a day are you typically working? Yeah, so I would come in, you know, roughly around nine, and um, only I come to the office three or four days a week till you know maybe five thirty six, and I'm really conscious of my time when I'm here. So I don't meet people for coffee and, you know, it's sort of, that's another one of, I think, Cyril's tips too, you know, the amount of people that might ask you to come and have a coffee, uh, you know, my whole week would be filled up with with coffee chats. So I'll often say, look, I I can't meet you for coffee, but uh, I'll give you a call when I'm driving to work or I'm driving home and I I um, ring people in that sort of dead time when you're sitting in traffic to to um you know see you know if, if someone might need some advice or or to have a catch up and i um we, we stop we have um someone that cooks us lunch at, at work at 12 30 every day so often i might um invite someone if if i um i need to have a catch up and you know, i might say well come and come and have lunch with me and that's a, a an easy way of, of having a quick half hour catch up so just trying to maximize my time when i'm here yeah and the weekdays that you're not at work are you working at home or you've reduced your entire workload down to three or yeah four days? no i i feel that um so yes i i um have an ability to work at home and you know obviously we we all did that in COVID and 
I enjoy coming to the office. So my preference is to come to the office. But sometimes, you know, we, you know, we have a policy at work that you can also work from holidays. So um, people might, you know, I think it's ten days a year that you can you can work somewhere, um, you know, if your family might be on school holidays somewhere and you can log in and, and work remotely. Um, so for me, I try and have Fridays that it, it's not a day that I come to the office. But, you know, I still might go and, you know, pop into some stores and have a look at how our products looking on the shelf. And, you know, there's there's always lots of um, lots of things to do and see. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is your, your work style now with, with a company that's obviously uh, uh, incredible. In, in I think you're in 35 countries now and you're doing well over yeah. 100 million in, in annual mm. revenue. But was it like that at the beginning where for the entrepreneurs who are maybe not as advanced listening to this, what kind of work hours were you doing yes. to create this great company? So I was doing crazy hours um, because... I didn't think anyone could do it as well as I could. Mm. And I think that's one of the the flaws is that do the things that you're the best at or that the business needs you to do. But if you can outsource something to someone that might be better at it than you are, Mm -hmm. that is, it's a false economy not to do that. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, super expensive things, but I'm always fascinated, you know, of people that will run around and put stuff in their car and drive, you know, an hour across town to drop it off themselves when you'd say, well, you know, put that in an Uber parcel and for $15, that'll get dropped off for you. Um, to try and make sure that, you know, that's that's how I look at my time now. Am I the best person to do that? And, or would I be better to to delegate that to someone else, and that might be someone who's more skilled, or, or you know, who might be someone who, uh, you know, it might be something that I, I don't perhaps necessarily enjoy doing so yeah. much, and sometimes that can take you a lot longer if it's something that you don't like doing because you procrastinate, which can mm. be the worst. So mm. I remember the first person I employed was someone who just came, you know, well, there's lots of different people I can think of, but someone that would, would do the deliveries, you know, I remember thinking, okay, that's probably something I don't need to be the one doing the deliveries or someone that helped me with the book work, um, you know, putting the invoices into the computer, you know, that was in the early days. Um, and I used to get my mum to come and work for free. So that's a good tip if, you, mm-hmm. if you're starting to, to um, you know, have a, have a small business that's growing. Sometimes your family might help you out. So, um that that was always a, a great thing at trade shows. She was um, the only person at the end of a trade show devastated that it was going to end because she loved it. <laughs> <laughs> she loved talking to people. Yes, loved it. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm very blessed. The Business Lounge. So let's go back right to the early stages again. Now, Carmen's eventually gained enough traction to earn the first check of $1,000 from a major supermarket. Now, I've heard you still have it framed at your headquarters. Yes. How, how no, do you I've, feel yes, when I you look at that check? Yes, I banked the check, though. I, ba- I want you to know that I banked the check. I just have the remittance <laughs> slip. I certainly, you know, I wasn't wealthy enough not to rush it to the bank. Um so I when you look at that now yeah. and you yeah. as you pass it by at the office, what what does it mean to you? What does it represent? For me, I think that it's always still the thrill of the success of Carmen's. I'm just as thrilled today if I see someone in a supermarket with a Carmen's pack in their trolley and I always go up and introduce myself and tell them how thrilled I am and you know to see them buying it and thanks for the support. And I, that's how I feel when I see this um, this check button on the wall because mm. 
you know, I felt so proud that day. I felt, honestly, it was like Donald Trump rushing to the bank. It was $1,097. I'll never forget the amount. And feeling just like, wow, you know, we've just been listed at Coles and that was such a big deal to, um, for, you know, for, for my business growth. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, you never forget those moments. Yeah, the the highs for sure, but also the lows, and maybe with the same company, you you had a few struggles with with Coles later on, didn't you? Oh, I've had lots, not so much, um, not not necessarily Coles. Lots of struggles with all sorts of you know things that have happened here, but you know we did um we did have you know some delistings. You know it's not it, it, there's no guarantee to keep products on the shelf, and I've learned. That you know, really, it's not about how product tastes, whether consumers want to buy it or not. Mm. And you only have a short amount of time to make that you know product successful. So you know, the biggest challenge is getting someone to hand their five dollars over and put the product from the shelf into their trolley and take it through the register. That's you know, it's sort of you know, people think the big challenge is getting it put on the shelf, but really, you know, once you're on the shelf, and you know, we're we're very lucky. We were just nominated, in fact, for Coal Supplier of the Year against all of these wow. giant multinationals this month, and um, uh, we we just uh, missed out. But still, I think there was there was three of us, you know, up against Arnott's and I think Mondelez, which are these you know yeah. giant billion dollar businesses and little Carmens that um, you know uh, I think um, you know is. We're doing our best to to keep our relationships and and our, um, our interactions with these retailers as as honest and and you know to understand that they want to stock products that sell and uh, you know that's what we aim to try and make. Yeah, and and you raised a, a really interesting point a minute ago when you said it's not just enough for the product to taste good; people have got to buy it. So does that mean that? It was. It's the packaging that's most important at, at first, uh, as people are walking down the the, the uh, aisle. And did you have to change your packaging a lot to make people want to buy it? There's the packaging. So, so the real aim is called what we call in our industry loyalty. Mm-hmm. So the fact, if you imagine you go to a supermarket and you would think, oh look, I normally buy Carmen's original muesli, and I've walked down the aisle, and gosh, I don't know. Some sporting clubs come in that morning and they've cleared the shelf and, and it's sold out. Would you just go and buy another muesli or would you say, do you know what, I'm going to wait and I'm going to come back in a couple of days or I'll mm. get some next week or I'll – and the idea that you won't buy anything else. So if you have real loyalty to a product and you wouldn't replace it with something else, that is the pinnacle of what you try and achieve. So it's one thing to get people to buy something once, but we can often – you can do that with packaging or with, you know, certain call-outs. People will often try you. But trial is just one thing. What we're aiming is that you'll come in and you'll want to buy us week after week. Mm. And what we're really excited about is to think that you actually wouldn't substitute us with anything else because you have such loyalty to that product. Mm. So, you know, we, we have a product in our range, which is our gluten-free muesli. And, you know, Often, whether it's celiacs or a lot of people just love that product, it has enormous loyalty that people just won't buy anything else if it's sold out or if it's not there. Or they'll go out of their way to think, I know that that retailer sells, you know, a big bag of Carmen's Deluxe and they'll make sure that they go to that place to, to stock up. So, yeah, that's that's the sort of the pinnacle of what we're trying to achieve. Mm. Now, clearly, you're a super go-getter, always have been, and clearly the product is also really good, and and the critical factors in your success. 
But why do you think the business, out of all the other supermarket businesses that had a had a good product, why do you think yours went gangbusters? Look, a, a couple of things. I think that we really genuinely put the consumer at the absolute heart of every decision we make. And I know that sounds like really basic, but so many food companies that sell into supermarkets don't do that. So for me, I would, you know, I will always have the voice of the consumer in any tasting, in any mm-hmm. flavour discussion, in any meeting, because if I can make Mary Lou out in, you know, Campbell thrilled that when she buys that product, the likelihood that she'll come and want to buy it buy it week after week is, is you know, far greater than just because she liked the packaging or, you know, that if I keep taking them. I mean, I know there's famous stories in the industry that they started um, down-specking cheese to the point in, in cheese slices where, where they got to one year and they weren't allowed to call them cheese slices anymore because there really? wasn't enough cheese in them to actually justify it. So, wow. if you actually, you know, I think the thing for Carmen's is that consumers get that we're putting good ingredients in and consumers get that we are passionate about um, the quality of our product. And that's how, you know, I think that's really at the heart of the success. You know, there's lots of other things, you know, obviously, well, when I started, Muesli was super duper daggy, Mm. um, but people have realised, you know, that this trend, you know, when I first, so I've um, just celebrated 30 years last December doing what I do. And at the start, thank you, it was very exciting. Mm. And at the start, people would um, want products that were completely fat-free. So there was this huge trend. I'm not sure if you remember, but it was all, you know, yogurts and everything and no one wanted to have coconut or have any form of fat in anything. And then, but they didn't care about the chemicals, could have a million numbers in it, all these fake sugars. And then sort of 10 years later, maybe 15 years, there was a huge trend towards no carbs. No one would be seen to eat a piece of bread and it was all Mm. no carbs. And then now we've come into this big trend, which is um, no sugar. And, you know, they're, there is controversy around the fact that, you know, having a piece of fruit or, you know, whether people, how they feel about sort of added sugar versus the naturally occurring mm. sugars. But anyway, um, and so that's obviously something that we're addressing now. So we're, we're now, we're very, um, we're very happy to put coconut in products and, and people read ingredients listings and they're thrilled to have products that are quite clean. Uh, they, they, you know, we're very conscious of, of having a lot of products now that we develop with, with, um, with either no added sugar or very low sugar levels. So, you know, trying to develop to the trends and what people are wanting. And we're looking at stuff coming from the UK or America. And I, I try and look at things um, probably about two years before they hit it in Australia to know that what's coming up and what do we need to develop for that next um, for that next trend. Yeah, yeah. And I think another interesting part of your company story, and, and I do find this absolutely amazing, is that apparently, other than your initial business partner that you had for a few years, for 10 years, you almost employed nobody. Is that is that correct? <laughs> you have done your research. I know. It was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. So, when you talk about, did I work crazy hours? I sure did. And, yeah. you know, for the first five years, though, I, 
I mean, I was making no money. If I could have given the business away, I would have. I mean, wow. I couldn't. It's very different if you can resign. You just go to work and you just say, look, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm resigning. You know, my, my daughter works at McDonald's and or did and, and you know, was, was going on a holiday and said, oh, well, I just went in, you know, I've resigned. Well, I couldn't do that. I wasn't in that. You can't just wrap a business up that easily. And I, you know, I had a $4,000 overdraft and I, I had mm. responsibilities and, so it was actually super hard because people would look and think, oh, wow, she owns this business. But I was making no money whatsoever. And, yeah. um, you know, it was super tough. And then it was probably really, you know, around the time when I started getting people. So it was better to get someone else to say, do the books or do the deliveries. And then I'd go out and open new accounts. And then that was sort of really when I, we were able to start. It really probably took 10 years for it to to be able to turn around and make a little bit of money and and be a, a bit more established as a business. Yeah, I mean, the average person listening to that would be stunned that it was that hard for so long, five years not making any uh, money. Yeah. Do you think that's a it's a bit of a disease in in entrepreneurialism these days that we we read all these articles or 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 or, or see you know TV interviews with entrepreneurs who who are in the tech world who who make a billion dollars in in two years and people have forgotten that creating most businesses takes a long time look i think that you know and maybe one of you know i i mentor lots and lots of young um people or people starting out in businesses and often people think that the big answer is to get someone to lend you heaps of money so that you can go and buy everything and advertise and market your product and that's what's going to make the you know the whole thing um successful but i think that the grunt work of you know i still think as much as i hated it at the time but standing at a farmer's markets or standing at a on a saturday morning i remember all my friends would I don't know, might go out and have a big Friday night and I had 8am, I was doing product tastings at Paran Market and, <laughs> um, you know, the those grunt years and not borrowing the money meant that I always treated every dollar like it was literally a dollar that I was not putting in my wallet. Yep. So, you know, and still to this day, I try and say, well, hey, if this was your actual money, would you spend it that way? Yeah. And I think sometimes people think that the answer is, you know, like, so I've been self-funded, you know, the whole time. Or, you know, I've borrowed, like, obviously had a little bit of an overdraft from the bank, but I've never taken an investor. I still own own Carmen's 100% myself. And that's just given me the freedom to make my own decisions yeah. when I want and not have to be, you know, to answer to someone else. And, you know, it's very easy to take an angel investor early on. It's very hard to get rid of them as the business has grown and all of a sudden their shares, you know, skyrocketed. So I try and encourage people to, to you know, utilise banks more than necessarily investors, unless it's really smart money, unless it's, unless it's someone that can really open doors for you and can really help, um, you know, it might be a strategic partner, Um and that said, I, I I do like I do quite like partners that are um, family members. I find that I find that they have a, more of an honesty. But sometimes, um, met friends can end up um, in a little bit of a battle sometimes. So yeah, I, I have liked, but I've owned Carmen's myself. You've obviously made some good decisions along the way because you now have over five hundred staff. What are some of your methods for managing so many people? Is it uh, a strict series of meetings or uh, uh, very organised metrics? What, what's the way you think about that? 
<laughs> I, w- I wish I was brilliant at this. And, mm. and just so you know, a lot, a lot of those staff are in the factory, so that's not um, necessarily someone that um, that I'm, um, you know, directly directly managing myself. But I try and I, I split it into two um into two main meetings. So every fortnight we have something called free time. So the the people that report to me, I say, how can I help you? What roadblocks have you got? And we have a a big open discussion about what are the challenges and, um, and, you know, what's happening for them. And then the other time for the next, so once a month, it's a time when they need to report into me. So they need to um, have prepared, let's say it's a marketing report, what what's been the return on investment of the things that we've done, uh, have we hit the numbers, say in finance, and I have someone um, with a, an accounting background who sits with me and um, he's worked with me for uh, about 20 years and we um, we have the, hold those meetings together. So, that you know, that's kind of structure of, okay, now how can I help you? And another time is let's just make sure what are the things you said you were going to do and let's just make sure that you're tracking that you've done them. So, um, and then, you know, the, the other thing, and I actually have a, a picture behind my desk at work here, which is about telling the truth. So early on in my career, uh, it took me a long time to be able to have much more frank and open conversations, but I think people really appreciate it. And if they know that you're coming from a place where you say, look, I know you didn't intend to turn up like that, but, um, you know, that you were a bit hostile or um, you seem really um, uncomfortable about this decision, uh, you know, to really try and say it when it happens and be very frank in your conversations. I think that's super important too. Yeah. And you're well known for for saying that uh, you learned that culture eats strategy for breakfast. (laughs) Tell us what you mean by that. So I think that's really important, you know, and I I didn't have, I don't have a business degree. um, I've sort of been self-taught along this this journey for me, but I've tried to treat people like I would like to be treated. And so whether that is in the way, you know, all the things that we do at Carmen. So from, um, you know, we have a, a, a head office, um, we're just near Chadston in Melbourne, in a place called Huntingdale that I'm very, very proud of. Um, and we have, for example, uh, a coffee shop downstairs where all staff can have free coffees and you can order it from your desk. And you, it's on a, I've hacked this technology called Skip where they um, prints out the docket and wherever you are in the building, they will bring the, the coffee or the tea or whatever to where you are. We have $5 awesome. lunches that we provide every day at 12.30. We have a gym. Um, a, we run yoga. Um, we have a yoga um, room and meditation and uh, a lot of people use our facilities. A lot of staff use them before and after or whatever point in the day. Um, so I feel if you treat people with respect, you know, I think the greatest respect, regardless of whatever facilities, and, you know, we often, we didn't used to be able to have the facilities that, that we do now. I think it's about um, people feeling empowered and people understanding, you know, I'm very open about all the figures and what Carmen's is trying to achieve and everyone's role in that, you know, everyone from, um, you know, customer service up to the, you know, Chief Operating Officer would would see everything. Um, every month we have a meeting which we call Pulse, and everyone gets to see what's happening and 
lots of different teams report on how we're progressing. We do something at 9.30 every day, which I learned from Vern Harnish called Huddle. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a Teams meeting where the whole company just, you can just put put your virtual hand up and say, is there something that other people might need to know? So we might be uh, out at a packaging supplier or we might have just got a new product listed or we might have, you know, received a large order from China and the whole company would would hear that um, every day. So the, the fact that information flows freely and I really try and stop any of that kind of water cooler conversations mm. of, you know, and it hasn't always been like this. It's been a very um, conscientious journey for me to um, to create a culture where people feel empowered and heard and respected um, and to try and make sure that you move any bad eggs on. You know, it might yep. not be the, the right culture for everyone, but and if, and if it's not for you and if this is, you know, you're too aggressive and you, know, you, you can't control your anger and, you know, that's just karma's will not be the place for you. So to get the right people on the bus, but, but to also have the bravery to get the wrong people off. Yeah, and if you had many circumstances where someone was really good at their job, but was just a terrible person. Hundred percent. Mm. It's not that they're a terrible person. It's more that you know we have you know there's a lot of respect in how we interact with each other, and you know it's it's a three hundred and sixty. You you know we expect people to be a good employee, but we also we expect your manager to be really good. And most people don't leave organisations because they uh, uh, don't like their job or they don't like the company. Most people leave organisations because they don't like their manager. And so really right. making sure that we upskill people, we run a great um, program for our emerging talent so that the um, the, the, the talent um, that we try and um you know, empower them and get them as part of our decision-making and also that we are very conscious of trying to um, promote within. And I think that's a that's a great thing, though, always to make sure that we give people a chance to, to progress um, internally through Carmen's and not just have external hires. Mm. Now, there's a strange rule you have. Tell me if this is true. Is it true <laughs> there's a, a no eating at your desk rule? And oh, what's the it's reason a behind very that? strict rule. <laughs> I just feel that, um, you know, firstly, I'm, uh, you know, clearly I'm a foodie and this is, this is what I do. But, you know, everyone should step away from their desk. I, I feel that this idea of shoveling in food in front of your computer while you're trying to smash out an email, mm. even if it's just for 15 minutes. So we all go and it's at 12.30 sharp. Everyone leaves their desk and between 12.30 and 1, we don't have any meetings and that we all go and, and have our lunch. And like I said, we offer a $5 lunch here, which is, you know, today it was a lovely, um, you know, grilled salmon and, and salad or there was a... Um, a, a lovely um, uh, lamb soup, mm -hmm. and people all stop. They go and pick up their lunch. We eat lunch together, and then you go back. And it's just, it's. I think that's how life should be. You know, I, I'm a big one for food culture, and um, I, I hate the idea even of dashboard dining. You don't want to have, you know, these people that you know that feel that a meal's just eaten at the dashboard when you're driving from one place to the other. So yes, I know there's sporting events and and things that when you know when you're driving your kids around that you might have to do things, but I'm I'm a huge one. You know, family dinner for me is an, a massively important part of my day. Yeah. Um, and I I feel that it sets the right tone at Carmen's and and people actually love it. So oh. um 
Uh, and, you know, because we offer lunch here, you know, it's not as though people, um, most people take up that offer. So uh, they're, they're pretty thrilled to go down and have a delicious lunch. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant rule because I've seen so many companies go to extraordinary efforts to get people to talk to each other. For instance, I was I was doing some work with, with one huge Australian corporation and it had designed its staircases to force different departments to pass by on the stairs in the hope that they would talk to each other. And I think your one's not only a hell of a lot cheaper, but so much more effective to get them to sit down and have lunch with each other because, you know, they're going to meet people that they wouldn't have met. And they also would get to hear from people in in, about their personal lives, not just all about work. 100%, yeah. So, and I think that, so we, um, you know, and you literally walk down to our kitchen, everyone, um, so when you, you put your lunch order through on your phone and, and it prints out uh, the ticket in the kitchen, you know, people, if they're vegan or they have a, any dietaries. And so you pick up your lunch and you sit down. It's almost just a, a, a taxi rank that you, you never quite know who you'll be sitting next to at lunch. And um, so often, you know, it's so it's the whole leadership team with, you know, it's all hierarchies of everyone sitting in, in different, um, uh, from different departments. So, you know, it is great to chat and to get to know about people in their private, you know, personal lives. And then we also um, generally once a week, we um, provide lunch and we have a lunch and learn. So we might have a speaker come in or we might have someone internally talk about something that, um, you know, a topic that they might want to present on. It might be something in HR on, you know, a new um, policy or something on whether it's, I think there's one coming up on unconscious bias. And so that's a, that's another thing that, that we do. And then every Thursday night, it used to be Friday night, but now, you know, with no one coming into the office on Fridays, um, we do Thursday night drinks. So we have a, a beautiful, it's called the Winter Garden, and we put on drinks. Um, so people come from about 4.30 or maybe 6 and and, um, and have a drink with their colleagues and interact. So, um, you know, some of these things, are, most of them are, aren't very expensive and, you know, I think companies sometimes try and think, well, how do I build my culture? And in the early days, it was just doing the quiz out of the Herald Sun that we used to do when we ate lunch together. Mm. Um, and then now it's some of the things that I've spoken about, but it just creates a respect and it also means that people get to know, yeah, lots of other people in the building and that they uh, that we don't just necessarily live and work in silos. You're exporting to, I think, 32 countries now? Yes. Yeah, it's, well, it's, I haven't actually done a, I can't, I haven't <laughs> done a, a count lately, somewhere, 32 plus. <laughs> yeah, 32 plus. But you're still manufacturing in Australia. Has it been a temptation yes. to do half that manufacturing uh, overseas? Not so much for um, for for the food component. We were tempted. We were doing a, a very big deal in England and that was, you know, quite a long way to send to Europe. But for Asia, it's not it's not too bad. So I feel it's part of our brand proposition that, that food's made in Australia and also I'm very proud that we have all of our packaging made in Australia too. We've got an incredible sort of ops team and the idea that, um, that you know, we could make it here and we just, you know, pack a container and put it on the water, it's, it's easier, you know, but we, we make food. So, mm. you know, I don't think, you know, most people don't, you know, certainly, you know, we export a lot to China and most, you know, um, wealthy Chinese people don't want to eat food that's grown in China. So uh, they actually love having imported food from our clean and green Australian countryside. Yeah. And when you're, when you're selling to China, do you Australianize your packaging so everybody can see, oh, this is from Australia or you don't play that card? 
Yeah, so it's sort of funny in the early days, great question, that we we actually China sort of fired our packaging and we made it in red and the lucky number was four, so we put four <laughs> bars in each box and all of this. But actually what people over there want is they want to know it's the rigid-ditch proper thing that exactly like you would buy in Australia. Right. So there's this, this um, thing where you put big stickers on the side of the pack to show that it's fully imported. So they actually want, um, they want to see those stickers. Yeah. So, yeah, it, so it's exactly the same um, as you um, as you would buy in Australia. Well, I guess it's the same like in fashion. If it says made in Italy, people will usually pay yeah. more. Uh, so I guess we're all like that around, around the world in our own way. Now, hmm. um, let's talk about government grants. You have, uh, in the early days, you got grants. So... It, how useful has that has a grant been a government grant been for you to to get ahead well the only uh, it wasn't so much the I mean, it was a little bit. It was more about helping us establish ourselves and export. So it was about the support from Austrade, and that was unbelievable. So they really helped get my first overseas um, clients established, and they helped us have trade shows in um, different countries and 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 go and export our product. And I have to say, it is it is a great organization and I and I'm very grateful for the support that they gave me because you know some of those clients are still the same clients that I have today wow. you know we've been probably exporting for 20 years and so and, you know, and, and did you just that, approach yeah. Trade? like you called them up and introduced yeah. yourself well, they run lots of seminars. So I remember going to a breakfast and the person said, you know, they were Austrade from Malaysia. And I went up with my little pack of muesli bars and I said, oh, hey, this is what I make. And the guy said, oh, look, I think I've got a client that might be interested. Do you want to have a coffee tomorrow? So I went and had a coffee with this guy and he said, um, oh, look, do you, how do you feel about sending um, LCL or are you going to insist on sending FCL? And I remember Simon at the time, I didn't know what FCL, which is a full container load, versus LCL, which is less than container load. And I said, look, look let me just think about that and I'll, and I'll send you an email and I'll come back to you. I'm <laughs> frantically trying to search all these terms and learn export very, very, very quickly. Um, but now we have an extraordinary head of our, um, of our export um, team, who Craig, who is an absolute rock star and, and um, is, you know, brilliant at, uh, you know, he's travelling the world all the time, uh, opening up new countries and um, getting us into some incredible retailers. So I'm no longer the one uh, trying to fudge my way through that. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's a great reminder to hear those stories for people to realise that really a lot of us, particularly in the early stages growing the business, we're we're faking it. We're trying to look, you know, like we know more than we do. And then eventually we, you know, you end up being being an expert, but you're not born an expert in business. Yeah, you, you're not. And I think it's the learning. It's sometimes being able to say, oh, hey, oh, let me come back to you, whether it's, you know, fudging it like I was doing or actually, you know, now, you know, I'll often say there's no such thing as a silly question. Just, you know, because sometimes if someone doesn't understand something, there might be multiple people that don't understand it. So um, being able to be open and, um, and honest, I think uh, people really appreciate that. Yeah. So you're big on goal setting. What are your next goals or what are some of your goals for the next, say, three years? Oh, lots of things. So um, we are very keen on entering new categories. So we're looking at... um, you know, what does that look like and where sh- where could Carmen's play in different aisles in the supermarket? We're aware that 
there's only a certain amount, you know, of, of space that we could potentially have in in the you know the two main categories where we're known now in breakfast and in in um, snacking bars, and then um, you know lots of uh, of a push and export. I'm very very proud of of our um, of exporting. Like I said, you know, thinking that here's something that's you know predominantly made in Melbourne, um, being sold in all these retailers around the world. Uh, what else have we got on? Um, oh, heaps of stuff around, uh, that, like I said, employee engagement and, and being a, an employer of choice and how, um, you know, our engagement score is very important to me and how people feel who work here. Hmm. So they're probably just some of the things that come to mind. Yeah, two big ones. And finally, you've achieved so much, Carolyn. When you're finally at the end of your life, age 156, <laughs> um, what would you like written on your tombstone? Oh, I think that that I um, that I gave back. That I didn't, you know, I've never aspired to to have, you know, the fanciest boat on the Sydney Harbour. But you know, I'm very proud. I I support um, a lot of girls in third world countries to try and get educated and to um, to reach some potential. And I'm very aware that I've been given uh, a lot of privilege in my life and a lot of opportunity, whether it's just through electricity and water and power and education. Um, and, you know, to think that there's a lot of people around the world that haven't had the chance that I'm able to help with, you know, a little bit with the success of Carmen's makes me very proud. Beautiful. Well, you're an amazing person. Congrats on all the success you've achieved. And thanks for being here in the Business Lounge. Thank you, Simon. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Business Lounge, where business outsiders become insiders. So, what have we learnt? Well, a whole lot of stuff occurs to me. First of all, look for opportunity in adversity. Let's have a look at the very start of how Carolyn grew this company or started this company. She started it because she was about to lose her job. They were about to get rid of the company. Now, a lot of people would put their tails between their legs and maybe go start looking for employment somewhere else. Carolyn took the opportunity and said, you know what, I can probably buy this myself. I don't have much money, so I'll make a low offer and I'll try and get that offer through in lots of interesting ways as as you heard. But so many people would have been defensive. And one of the best pieces of advice I always give people when I'm coaching uh, executives and, and CEOs is always attack. And that's exactly what Carolyn did. In, in a position where a lot of people would play defense, she attacked. Next, involve the consumer. Wasn't it interesting how she was talking about how she's doing so much deep research uh, uh, with the consumer, conversations with them, surveys with them, uh, uh, group uh, research uh, meetings with them. She is deeply engaged and interested in what the consumer thinks, what the customer thinks, so that, as she said, they're not just buying once and not just buying twice, but they have loyalty that might last for decades. Imagine a repeat customer for decades and how that affects uh, your revenue. Next up, tell the truth. You know, it sounded like it was a lesson that was that was hard learned. And now central to Carmen's Fine Foods is the philosophy, the culture of saying it how it is. Now, what we really sense from uh, uh, 
Carolyn, is that she has a real warmth to her. So we're not talking about ruthless telling the truth. We're talking about candor, but with warmth and with care and with love for the for the people and uh, that work in the company. It doesn't mean you can't be honest with them. And the truth is good people want people to be honest with them. In addition, the Daily Huddle, that came from Vern Harnish, uh, who's a, a great management uh, consultant. And it's usually a 10 or 15 minute meeting with a set series of questions with the whole team every day where you find out what's happening in the company and they find out what's happening in the company and they set their compass for the day or the week as to what they're going to do. It's a great principle and it's well worth researching. And talking of Vern Harnish, what we heard from Carolyn is so much about the importance of learning and so many times she was saying things that were clearly learnt from some of the best people in the business. She talked about Cyril Pupion when it came to time management. She talked about Vern Harnish, and we, as we mentioned. But she also talked about getting people, the right people on the bus, which is a Jim Collins concept, one of the, the, the world's greatest management experts. She also talked about... Um, uh, different aspects of, of treating your your uh, staff that I knew came also from other management experts. So there's so much education. For a person who didn't do a business degree at university, she's got 100 business degrees from her own efforts in learning. And I think that is one of the great things that we've learnt from Carolyn here today. She built this company not just with hard graft, not just with hard hard work, but with hard learning every step of the way to the point where she is an exemplar on, on management principles, on leadership principles, and on business growth methods. I hope you've enjoyed today. I got an enormous uh, amount out of it. It's just an honour to speak to such a legend of Australian business. And we'll see you next time in the Business Lounge. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Sunil Badami. When you don't love what you do, you're never paid quite enough. But when you do love what you do, nothing's too much trouble. What if you could turn your passions into profit? The radio show that explores the exhilarating, the innovative and the unpredictable in the rapidly evolving world of work. Finding the right side hustle or meaning in what you do. How to work with AI before it takes your job. How do you navigate office politics via Zoom? How important is diversity when everyone's working from home? Sunil Badami opens your gateway to the brave new world of work on The Next Shift. Work is changing faster every day. Live on DAB+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio.